We're turning to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, the Bible says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing onto the reading of His Word tonight. And you may well know that our topic tonight is, and if you don't, then you're going to know it now in a couple of seconds. We're taking the topic, the bridge on the River Kwai. The bridge on the River Kwai. That bridge has often been described, Bridge on the River Kwai, as one of the greatest films of all time. And it was made by Sir David Lean, and that epic by his, it would have been the top box office earner back in the year of 1957. That was the year of its release, and it scooped up seven Academy Awards then, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Musical Score. That film was based on a 1952 novel. And the novel had the same title, although in French, given the fact it had a French author, a bridge over the river Kwai again. In the film, for anyone who knows that Alec Guinness plays the commander of a group of British prisoner of wars. Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson is the name in the film, and he rather bizarrely insists that what we're going to do here, men, is we are going to build the best possible bridge for the Japanese as a testament to British engineering and to hard work. At the end of the film, a commando unit blows up the bridge as the very first Japanese locomotive passes over it. The film is based upon a real bridge that was built by British POWs as part of a huge project that snaked through the Burmese and the Thai jungles. But when we say based, we need to use that word based upon in the loosest of ways. Yes, there was a bridge over the River Kwai. Yes, it was built by British prisoners of war. And yes, there was a lieutenant colonel who was in charge of the prisoners who built it. However, however, there are actually two bridges, not one. And he didn't cross 
the river Kwai initially, but a tributary of that river, not the main river itself. And the film ignores, while it mentions British prisoners, it ignores the tens of thousands of civilians who were also forced to work in the construction of that railway. The bridge in the film, in terms of its surroundings, it bears very little resemblance to what is in reality. When the film's producer, Sam Spilgink, he came to Thailand and he found, as he looked around the shooting locations there, they're not exactly what I'm looking for. So what he did was, he thought, terrible place to shoot a film, let's move on from here. He went to Sri Lanka instead, that was the place where his wife had come from, and he found a perfect landscape outside of Colombo in Sri Lanka. They did build a bridge for the shoot, and they were determined, we are going to blow it up when the train is coming over the top of that bridge. The truth, however, is the bridges were put of action, but only in the last year of the war were they put out of action, and that was by RAF bombing rather than by a squad of commandos. And above all that, the lieutenant colonel was no Japanese sympathizer, as he's portrayed in the film, or turncoat. He was a man who, rather than trying to build the best bridge that he possibly could, he actually did his utmost to sabotage the construction that was undergoing. So, what is the real story behind the bridge on the River Kwai? Following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, an almost simultaneous offensive was launched by the Japanese forces against the British in the colonies they held in Malayam and also in Singapore. They targeted as well the Dutch East Indies, that's now Indonesia, and they also went for the American-controlled Philippines. In February of 1942, the British forces in Singapore surrendered. That was numerically one of the most terrible disasters that ever happened to the British Army. Almost 80,000 British, Australian, Indian, and local forces suddenly were made prisoners of war. And we have General Percival, and he's surrendering there in Singapore. And the Japanese, by now, they are swinging into another colony of Britain, Burma, and they're pushing right up onto the border with India. Now, that densely forested land was an absolute nightmare to fight in. The Japanese quickly decided, because the Americans now are fully engaged in the war, it's 1942, they are in command of the seas as well, and so if we are to try and ship the material up for launching the battle into India, then we're going to be picked off everything that we bring by that means. And so they decided to go for Plan B. And plan B was a massive undertaking. They were going to try and build a railway through 258 miles of mountainous jungle from Thailand all the way up through Burma onto, well, near touching the land of India, and they're passing through the scenic Three Pagodas Pass. That railway line, they were going to use that to transport all the cargo right through to India to back up the offensive against that land. Japanese engineers looked at the project, and they reckoned that'll take five years 
But the Imperial Japanese Army Command said, no, totally unacceptable. You need to do it in much less time than that. Now, the challenge was the terrain, but there was another challenge, and that was a lack of manpower whereby they could undertake such a project as this. Initially, what the Japanese did was they drafted in the local Thais and the Burmese. They made them the workforce. And then they started to throw out a few incentives. And they said, well, we will give you $3 a day for all of those civilians in Southeast Asia who will sign up for our project. We'll give accommodation for your families as well. But like so many other things, too good to be true, it was a scam. Most of those who signed up under that scheme with those terms, they never received more than a third of the pay that they had been promised. The housing, the accommodation, was little more than a bamboo version of a shanty town with very little sanitation or medical support. And when this sugar-coated approach didn't work with the locals, what they simply did was, okay, you've had an opportunity, and they just swept through Southeast Asia, Malaya, Singapore, Dutch East Indies, and they brought in 180,000 through to 250,000, and they forced these people to work on the railway. 90,000 of them lost their lives. Now, there was one more source, potential source of labor that was open to the Japanese. The thousands of prisoners of war that they had captured during their sweep through Malaya, Singapore, Dutch East Indies, and more recently, Burma. And in total, 190,000 British and Commonwealth servicemen had been held as prisoners of war by the Japanese during the Second World War, which is more than were ever held by the Germans. 61,000 out of that number were pressed to work as slaves on this Burma railway. The work itself began in September 1942. Parties began in Burma, others in Thailand. They staggered them all along the line. Despite it being called the Burma Railway, actually two-thirds of it was in the land of Thailand. Not only did the prisoners, both the POWs and the civilians, have to hack their way through these 260-so miles of mountainous jungle, but along the way, they constructed 688 bridges by hand. Now, Bridge 277 was the famous bridge on the River Kwai. It was on the Burma border, virtually, constructed over this tributary, but it became so famous as being the bridge on the River Kwai that the Thai authorities kind of bent with the wind, and this section of river they renamed in 1916, and it was then called the Kwai River. One point that I want to highlight is the horrendous cost in this construction the horrendous cost. Within three months of the surrender of Singapore, 3,000 Australian prisoner of wars were moved north through Malaya into Thailand, and your, they were telling them, your job is to build airways and infrastructure that is going to support our big railway project. The following month, 
that was June of 1942. They brought a similar number of British POWs. They left Singapore. They're going north, three-day journey, sitting in stifling cattle trucks. Ultimately, 61,000 prisoners of war were pressed into service on this Burma railway. Vast majority, 30,000, were British. The railway they built in sections, camps, with about a thousand POWs in each camp, stretched out every five to ten miles, and they were working on a specific designated section of the route. The camps were long huts, round about 60 yards in length, made of bamboo, open sides, filthy floors, inside each barrack hut, 200 men would have been living and sleeping there on those raised platforms. While the Japanese had signed the 1928 Geneva Convention, they had never fully ratified it. And so the normal protection that was offered to prisoners of war by the Germans was not afforded to them by the Japanese. Coupled with that, throughout the 1930s, the Japanese instilled in their national culture, especially in the military, anybody who surrendered would be beneath contempt. They are the dregs of society. That's why you have a lack of Japanese willing to surrender until the very last stage of World War II. And with that prevailing attitude, with no Geneva Convention to be adhered to, prisoners of war, including officers, were forced to work on projects that directly supported the Japanese war effort, and there was very little medical provision, and they were operating all the time on starvation rations. If you were one of them, you'd find you're on a meager diet. It consists almost entirely of rice, an odd vegetable thrown in. And that reliance on rice led to most of those prisoners suffering from severe vitamin B deficiency. And even when the Red Cross parcels arrived, their meager contents were often held back by the Japanese authorities. So with this attitude, surrender is dishonorable, and you guys have all surrendered. The Japanese guards were more than happy to hand out sadistic and savage punishments, physical and mental, to all of those prisoners of war. The taskmasters were relentless. As Australian Brigadier Arthur Varley put it, the Japanese will carry out their schedule, and do not mind if the line is dotted with crosses. Now let's drop into those conditions that we've already described, the sheer physical nature of constructing a 258-mile railway through a tropical jungle, and what are you using? The most rudimentary of tools. So the whole railway line, it's going to be built here by muscle power. You're working in dense malarial jungles, in sweltering heat, with monsoon rains. Some sections, such as the infamous Hellfire Pass, required you carving through tough, sheer rock. And during the cutting of that pass, 69 men were beaten to death across a 12-week period. One former POW, John Coast, he compared it to be like a slave building the pyramids in Egypt in ancient times. He wrote a book 
The book was entitled Railroad of Death, published it in 1946, and he recalls that one day, he and fellow prisoners, they were required to lift 88 giant timbers out of the river, then carry them 60 yards before stacking them neatly. And can you imagine doing that for a full day? And imagine doing it in a tropical heat, and all you have to sustain you is a small bowl of rice and maybe a vegetable. And all the time you're under the eye of the Japanese, Korean guards as well. And their attitude towards you as somebody who has surrendered could result in beatings or worse for the slightest infringement. Or even if you showed a mere change of mood, or they showed a change of mood, then it was curtains for you. Alongside this slave labor, on a starvation diet, prisoners had to contend with this hostile environment. So we have dysentery, very rife, as was malaria, several outbreaks of earworms of cholera in the British camps. That wasn't helped by the fact that in the case of the British, they had few medical officers among them, the few that they had. They had little experience of tropical diseases, and they'd next to no access to appropriate medication. Even if you managed to sidestep the killer diseases, you ran the gauntlet of razor-sharp cuts from bamboo that often turned septic, leg ulcers, lice, dermatitis, and bed bugs. Now, despite these nightmarish conditions, equipped with only the most basic of tools, those prisoners of war pulled off an amazing feat of engineering. The completion of the railway was marked by the Japanese officer in command of the whole construction project, General Ishida, and he drove a golden peg into the final piece of track. Ishida had overseen the completion of an incredible project, a railway through these 258 miles of mountainous jungle with all of these 688 bridges and a 1,300-feet viaduct at Wangpo, all built with manual labor and completed in just over a year. But the cost in lives had been horrendous. Out of the total number of prisoners among the soldiers, 61,000, 16,000, approximately one quarter were to die on that railway. Break that down a little, you're talking about over 400 of them for every mile of track that they created, or one body every 12 feet. Those grim statistics equating really to a man dying for nearly every sleeper that was laid on the track, led to this line being dubbed Death Railway. One British prisoner of war wrote, Everywhere in the jungle, the graveyards made their appearance. Starting in a small way, they gradually grew bigger, until when the railway was completed at the end of the year, Thousands of bodies lay in the jungle from one end to the other. After the war, they took them out of the makeshift cemeteries, put them into three main graveyards, 
You will find, as with all arena of conflict, and maybe especially in the hands of the Japanese, those that survived, when they came home, they rarely talked about their horrendous experience. They carried their mental and physical scars of being Japanese POWs the rest of their lives. In fact, there's a fascinating article in the QJM Medical Journal published by Oxford University Press, and it tells us we have looked at the health of the surviving POWs that have come out of Japanese captivity. Up to a third of them suffer from PTSD in later life. And many of them, cases of osteoarthritis, are incredibly high in comparison to any other theater in the war. And there's evidence in Australia that suicides were also very much higher than the norm. 111 Japanese officers and NCOs were put on trial for war crimes due to what they had done in treating the POWs during this time. 32 of them were found guilty and were put to death, including General Ishida. When we talk about horrendous cost, and horrendous cost is written all over this project, I think of another bridge, a bridge built at Calvary at an incredibly colossal cost. This bridge of salvation, it spans a dangerous divide. It was only accomplished through great suffering and death. Sin has caused a barrier between God and ourselves. We're told in Isaiah 59 and 2, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. And that divide between us, sinful men, and almighty, holy God, it is so wide that no person has ever been able to cross it by their own wisdom, by their own power, by their own self-effort. We can't build a bridge to God. But the Lord Jesus Christ in grace is God's bridge to us. And that's why, in order to span this huge gap, God in His great love, and we read about that in Romans 5 tonight, He designed, He constructed a tremendous bridge at a cost beyond all calculation. The price paid for building the bridge of salvation was the life of the eternal Son of God. A life that is infinite in value. A life that is willingly laid, laid down in death at Calvary. A life that was taken up again through the power of the resurrection. Sometimes we sing, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Romans 5 and 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Colossians 1, the verse 21 and the verse 22, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Horrendous cause. The other two points are not as long, so panic not. Heroic character. Heroic character. Work started on bridge number 277 in October of 1942. They and that bridge were spanning 300 meters, 1,000 feet across the river. 
And initially the construction team was made up of 1,000 British prisoners of war under the command of a man by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Philip Toosey. Later, Dutchmen and others were joining their squad. In the film, those British prisoners of war were also commanded by a lieutenant colonel. In that case, the fictional lieutenant colonel Nicholson, played by Alec Guinness. And he was collaborating with the Japanese, trying to build the bridge to the highest standard and trying to curry their fever. He also brought to the attention of the Japanese commander who was Colonel Sayatum in the film, he brought to his attention that there are explosive charges here led by British commandos that you need to be aware of. Now, apart from sharing the same rank and constructing the bridge and the River Kwai, that's where the similarities between Nicholson and Toosey end. Philip Toosey was born in Oxton, near Birkenhead in 1904. He was denied going to university by his father, so he became an apprentice at a Liverpool cotton merchant's. That business went under during the Great Depression, and so he joined the Liverpool branch of the Bearings Bank. In his 20s, rugby player Philip Toosey was commissioned in the Territorial Army, and then he served with the Royal Artillery. By the time that the Second World War broke out, he had risen to the rank of Major. He went with his unit to Belgium, then he was evacuated with them from Dunkirk in 1940. By this stage, he's moving up through the ranks, he's promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and he's placed in charge of the 135th, that's the Hertz Yeomanry Field Regiment of the Royal Artillery, and it was that regiment posted along with him in October 1941 to Singapore. And he's only there two months in Singapore, and the Japanese attack. During the defense of Singapore, Toosey is awarded the Distinguished Service Order, the DSO. He commanded his men so effectively that they sent a message to him, Toosey, get out of there before you're captured along with the rest. But he refused to leave his men, and so he became one of those 80,000 prisoners of wars taken by the Japanese when the island fell in early 1942. He's now in command of the British prisoner of war camp in Tamarkin. Dear Bridge 277, he's anything but a collaborator. He organizes the smuggling of food and medical supplies into the camp. He also helped with the escape of two of his men. Unfortunately, those escapees were quickly captured and bayoneted to death by the Japanese. Toosey's involvement in that escape attempt was uncovered. Sergeant Major Sayatum, whose name was used for the Japanese commanding officer in the film, this Sergeant Major, he delivered a beating to Toosey, forced him to stand to attention for 24 hours, but little did Toosey know at that time that he was actually saving his life in the process. The Japanese version of the Gestapo had wanted to execute him, but Sayatum told him he would deal with the punishment of the British officer. Despite that punishment, the two of them developed a kind of 
professional relationship that allowed Toosie to negotiate and get some privileges, time off, improvement in facilities and whatnot for his men. But most of all, rather than trying to build a solid bridge for the Japanese, as in the fictional novel and film uh, they would portray this man as doing, he did his best to undermine the project. He ordered his men to collect termites and place them in the wooden structures of the bridge. There were actually two bridges. One was wooden, the other was metal and concrete. And he organized that the concrete going into the more solid of the two bridges should be mixed badly in the hope that eventually that bridge would crumble. Now, despite his best efforts to quietly do his work of sabotage, those bridges were eventually completed, and in October 1943, the whole of the Thai-Burma Railway was opened. After the completion of the railway, somewhere in the region of 10,000 Allied prisoners of war were sent right through to Japan itself. Lieutenant Colonel Tuzi was posted to look after some other prison camps in Thailand. He was still there when the war came to its end in 1945. And when he was liberated, they wed him. And he wed in uh, just seven and a half stone. Surviving veterans, his own men, considered Tuzi one of the finest officers they ever served under. And it's hardly surprising that many of those former prisoners of war find when the book came out and then the film based upon the book, they find it to be on British, a slur on Toosie's character in particular. And this same humble man, who wouldn't desert his men in Singapore, he didn't want to speak out and draw attention to the real role that he had fulfilled on the River Kwai, but eventually he came under such pressure by his former colleagues that he did send a letter into the press outlining how his role as camp commander at the River Kwai was so very different to Alec Guinness's role in the film. After liberation in 1945, he returned to the northwest of England. He served in the TA into the 1950s, became eventually High Sheriff of Lancashire. They knighted him, Brigadier, Brigadier Sir Philip Toosey, DSO, died in 1975, and he's buried where he was born, at Oxton, near Birkenhead. There's a beautiful footnote to the Philip Toosey story. One Japanese NCO, non-commissioned officer, was spared during the big trial of those 111 officers and NCOs, and he was spared because of the intervention of a British prisoner of war, Philip Toosey. Toosey spoke up on behalf of Sergeant Major Sayato. Sayato was set free. Sayato was shocked that Toosey hadn't borne him a grudge, moved in for big retaliation. He said it profoundly changed his views on life. Ten years after Philip Toosey was buried in Birkenhead, an elderly Japanese gentleman visited the grave, wanting to pay his respects, former Sergeant Major Sayato. He bowed his head, said a short prayer. After the war, he had converted to Christianity, 
a profound change in his life that was due in no small part to Tuesday back in 1945. When we come to the bridge of Calvary, there is one hero and only one hero, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is through His work alone and by His grace alone. Not long ago, we were thinking about the Reformation, and in the Reformation, there are five solas that are main, and one of the main solas pointing Christ, solus Christus, only Christ, or Christ alone. And we read deliberately tonight in Romans chapter 5, the verse 1 and 2, where I think all five solas are compressed into two verses. Because the verses are Scripturum, then that's sola scripturum, the Bible alone. But Paul goes on to say, therefore, being justified by faith, that's faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ alone, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, that's grace alone, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the glory of God alone. All five solas contained there in Romans chapter 5, the opening verses. And when our reformers came up with these phrases, based their doctrine around them and their teaching around them, they weren't inventing something new. They were simply uncovering again, taking the dust off, proclaiming the rich doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ alone that is so prominent and prevalent in the Bible. Those who base their salvation, and many do today, upon divine grace plus human merit, who base it on faith plus human works, who base it on Christ plus the teachings of a church, they can never be sure of their salvation because they're grounding their salvation not merely on God alone, but on man as well. And the Bible is clear. Salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, rests only on the person of Jesus Christ, and rests on Him alone. Human works are completely excluded. And so if you're wanting to go to heaven, and I trust all of us do, here's the bridge we need to get on to, one that is built on the solid pillars of the finished work of Jesus Christ, on God's unchangeable Word, a bridge that cannot be moved. He, our Lord Jesus, is the undisputed hero of the cross. Horrendous cost. Heroic character. Finally, historic consequence. Historic consequence. In the film, the bridge over the river Kwai was destroyed by a commando unit before it could be used. But the events depicted in the film, this chaotic commando raid, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson's wounded body falling dramatically on the detonator and blowing up the bridge, all of that is completely false. In reality, both bridges were used for well over a year. Now, Death Railway became a target. It was bombed incessantly by the Allies from 1943 when it opened onwards. Of the 688 bridges along the course of the railroad, 
B-24 bomber crews could put 30 or 40 bridges out of action every single day. An American captain, Carl Fritsch, he indicates that if the merciless Japanese knew an attack was coming up, they would have taken, well, you can guess what they'd have done, they would have taken the prisoners out. And they'd put the prisoners out onto the structures in an attempt to deter the liberators from their tasks. After the raids, the enemy would send out the prisoners to repair any damage the bombs had done. By 1944, the operational capacity was being massively hampered by the damage done by these air raids. The River Kwai itself, three sections of that were destroyed. And you can see that if you ever went to it, there are replacement sections in there today. Finally, it met its fate after guided bombs hit it in February. It was blown up completely in June of 1945. Not by some well-placed dynamite brought along by the commandos on a raid, but by the air. Liberator bombers of the Royal Air Force. For all the death and all the misery caused by the building of this project, this Burma-Siam Railway only ever carried two Japanese divisions and half a million tons of supplies for their war effort. Interestingly, when this bridge over the River Kwai was bombed, number 277, they had a temporary wooden bridge, the second bridge, Downstream, That was a contingency plan. And that war, through the war, that bridge, that wooden one, was bombed and rebuilt no less than nine times. When the war was over, the railway in Burma was allowed to return to jungle. Parts of it do still stand. Other parts appear in some local war museums. There's a section here in Thailand over the River Kwai. It's been rebuilt. It's still in use. And it's really pretty much a local tourist attraction now. You can take a small train over it, or you can walk across it yourself. There's not much else that would be terribly interesting for tourists in that area, but they have a River Kwai Bridge Festival each year. And they've also decided they're going to build an 18-meter-tall marble statue of a Buddhist goddess. People can't really see how that possibly fits in. They have an amusement park as well with a Buddhist temple in the middle of it. And somebody has said, actually Arthur Lean, chairman of the National Ex-Services Association, and he hardly sounds impressed when he says it, if someone is trying to blow it up and wants contributions, uh, just send them to me. So, little is left of a 258-mile railway. It has slipped to the level of a mere tourist attraction. By contrast, that bridge of salvation, open at Calvary, is still open. The sacrifice of Christ on that cross for our sins is a finished work. I read in 1 Peter the chapter 3 and the verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Doesn't need to do it again. It's a once and for all sacrifice, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In Hebrews 10, the verse 10 to 17, the same truth, once and for all. And as we're saying, this bridge is still open. 
to you and to me. Though millions have found him a friend and have turned from the sins they have sinned, the Savior still waits to open the gates and welcome a sinner before it's too late. The hand of my Savior is strong and the love of my Savior is long. Through sunshine or rain, through loss or in gain, the blood flows from Calvary to cleanse every stain. Here's the message. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. But time is short. Time is short. Won't you, as a traveler with me to eternity, place yourself with Christ, laying hold by the empty hands of your faith, taking hold of Him, the only Savior. Claim the passage offered to you in His words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed over the bridge from death unto life.